Greetings, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. Today is November the 20th at approximately 527 in the evening. Just a short while before I leave for the major meeting that I attend on Friday night, where God is moving in wonderful ways by his spirit. I want to share what the Holy Spirit has been saying to the body of Christ this week. What he is saying to me as an individual this week and to you as an individual. I seek to be led by the Holy Spirit, by the sovereign power of God to the right passages of scripture almost every day of the week and I meditate in them and take a few brief notes in a period of a half an hour. And so what I'm going to share with you are the passages that I received this week, and I will share a particular chapter as the theme chapter. So beginning way back on um, November the 14th, last Saturday, I received Isaiah 62, and I made, made these brief notes. We, who are to be watchmen of the Lord, are to give him no rest until the Lord establishes Jerusalem as a praise in all the earth. We are to prepare a way for the people, that is the people of God, by making a highway where all stones of stumbling have been gathered out and the standard of holiness has been lifted up for the people of God. These people will be called holy and redeemed, and they will be in cities that are sought out and never forsaken. These will be the cities of refuge in the last days, which will also accumulate in the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven unto the earth, as is described in Revelations chapter 21 in particular, and also 22, the last chapter of the Bible. I can tell you that God was clearly speaking to me to be one of those that is taking out the stumbling block, taking out the stones, and preparing a highway for the return of the bridegroom to inhabit his bride in the gathering of the saints. Not merely on meetings, certainly including times of tremendous moving of the Holy Spirit in meetings, but also that includes the total aspect of community, a city of refuge, cities of refuge that God is desiring in these last days to begin and to multiply around the world so that as it says in the word of God, as truly as I live, says the Lord, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. And as it also says in Isaiah, that in the last days he will cause praise to spring forth in all the earth as the buds from a garden. And we have the example in Isaiah 24, which is describing the great earthquake, which will cause all the cities of the nations to fall. It's the seventh seal judgment that is clearly described in the book of Revelation that ushers in the kingdom of God. The Antichrist world system is destroyed by a massive, powerful earthquake. And it says in Isaiah 24, as it describes this powerful earthquake and the judgments that God brings upon the earth because man has violated the everlasting covenant, that is the covenant that is a symbol of him being married to his bride in the perversion of marriage and other things that are flaunting defiance and rebellion against the very purpose of God, which is marriage to his corporate bride 
as is reflected in the creation of all things that have female and male counterparts. And so in this earthquake in Isaiah 24, and I could turn to it, uh, and I could read that little bit maybe. So I will just go quickly to Isaiah 24 and read some certain parts of Isaiah 24 here. In Isaiah 24, it is describing this massive earthquake. And it mentions this and some of the context that is around this. Maybe I'll start in verse, I guess, 11. A crying for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. In the city is left desolation, and the gate is smitten with destruction. And then it says this. When thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree, and as the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires, and the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. From the uttermost parts of the earth have we heard songs. Glory to the righteous, but I said, my leanness, my leanness. Woe unto me, the treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Yea, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. And it goes on to describe then this powerful massive earthquake. But here it is describing that they will lift up their voice and they will sing for the majesty of the Lord. They will actually, in verse 14, glorify God in the fires because there will be the fires of destruction that will destroy all the cities of the earth in this massive earthquake. But these cities of refuge where the body of Christ has come into total maturity and purity to be his corporate bride will be singing praise in the midst of this great destruction unharmed. God will be their shield and their protector at this time. And that earthquake will also cause the mountain of olives to split in half. They found the earthquake fault that goes through the Mount of Olives. And it says in Jude that he will return with 10,000s of his saints, which is a quote from the book of Enoch, which isn't in the Bible, but a very good book to read. And that has great legitimacy, even though it was not included in the canon of scripture. He will return with 10,000s of his saints to execute judgment. And of course, other scriptures say that he will rule with a rod of iron at that time. And the wicked will be destroyed by the devouring fire of God's presence and taken into eternal torment. So here in Isaiah 62, God is saying that he is calling his people to take out the stumbling stones, to make a highway, to lift up the standard for the return of his glorious kingdom. And he's describing the city that is sought out and never forsaken, which are these cities of refuge. And so I want to mention to you that just before, I believe it was just before from what I can remember, before I receive these scriptures, which have the same theme this week, basically, as what I'm sharing with you in Isaiah 62, I was strongly impressed by the Holy Spirit in prayer to begin to write a detailed outline, which could also be turned very easily into a book, on exactly what God is wanting in the local assemblies of believers that will allow the fullness of the headship of Christ to inhabit his body. The body of Christ needs to repent 
of not allowing the fullness of the headship of Christ to come down and fully inhabit his body. They need to repent that their house of God is not a house of prayer, as it ought to be. I'm not here at this point going to go into all the details of that. But as I began to do this outline, which includes very specific things in every aspect of gathering to worship and so on, that would bring the highest standard and the greatest openness to not limit God in our midst, and that would remove the spots and the wrinkles, if you will, of division, of denominational mindset and heart set, I found that God was strongly bearing witness with me to do this outline. For example, it even covers the detail of taking communion in each meeting. How many churches, when they gather to take the communion, rush it through, they take the wine, and the next thing, or I should say, they take the bread, and the next thing you know, they're taking the wine within probably less than... 30 seconds or a minute. And I point out, if we're really wanting to show total diligence in our appreciation for the outpouring of love of God in his broken body and in his blood outpoured for us, how can we rush something through like that? Should there not be time after you take the bread to have at least three to five minutes just to dwell on how Christ's body was broken for us, how his body suffered more than us, and what would we do if, as we give our bodies to be broken in that time when we may be called to be a martyr or tortured for him, or maybe not, but broken in some way for others, for his name's sake? As we dwell on that, and we don't rush it through, and we become aware of the greatness of God's mercy and love to us that it was brought, he was broken for us. And likewise with the wine, another three to five minutes, not some rush through thing that's 15 seconds. And how many, when they do the communion, will sometimes, I've seen churches where they had Kool-Aid instead of the wine where they have white puffed up bread. You know, puffed up bread represents leaven. It represents sin. It's the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It should be similar to the matzah that is used in the Passover. Why would we not give the greatest diligence and honor to God to do things in the most pleasing and highest way instead of taking something that would, and white on top of it processed, representing man's ways instead of God's? The same with the wine. Why would we want anything less than real, genuine grape juice? And if there's people that have a problem with alcohol, you can have them have it just without any fermentation. But I'm just giving an example of what I'm putting in this outline. This is a little small example. These are not the main, I'm not, this is just one. I'm just telling you I'm going into all the details of every aspect of assembly and how to be giving the highest regard and highest standard to allow the fullness of the glory of God to inhabit the assembly of the saints corporately. And of course, then that goes into uh, community. I know so many people in churches, single ladies, that can't even hardly make ends meet and that have physical problems in their body. In fact, they can't make ends meet. And here people are giving money to the far corners of the earth and they're neglecting the very ones in their midst. And there's no money set aside to properly meet the needs of those that are weak and needy among the body of Christ. And there are many examples. I'm just giving you a few. There's so much that it will, I could talk for ages in the outline already, though it's far from done has enough in it to uh, write a book on as far as all the sub points and main points I've covered on 
what should be happening when we gather together as the body of Christ in worship. I believe that God will bring the resources, the financial resources, soon to people like myself, which don't have any at all, to implement this outline that I am bringing out because it is nothing less than the highest standard and the greatest openness to not limit God in any way from moving through his bride and to bring forth cities of refuge. It's not enough to just have a church. It must be a community where we share our business interests together and all things work to form a powerful city of refuge and a fortress of light and an army that can bring the presence of God down within your community to a point that it reverberates and fills that whole area to, so that we see results like we saw in the Welsh revival where the presence of God so prevailed that people could not even go into the beer parlors without coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and being converted. Amazing account in church history. And yet they did not have the fullness of what God wants to do in the last days. These things fell apart after time because there wasn't the government to contain the glory. God is looking for far more than another revival that comes and goes. This is something that once it comes, there's this, not the structure of man, but there's the government of God that overtakes all the hierarchies of man's ways in corporate assemblies of believers to bring forth a glory that can ever enlarge as time goes on with greater and greater power. And in the last days, there will be these assemblies around the earth that will spring forth, as it says in Isaiah, as the buds from a garden with praise unto God. Well, I got into Isaiah 62 just a little bit, but that's not what I believe is the theme passage possibly that I will be sharing today. I did receive on Monday Amos 7, and basically there wasn't much to share on that, except that it's pointing out that true prophets are fearless of speaking the truth before the very ones that have the power to immediately take their life away or torture or wound them. They preach repentance and they do not seek anything but the glory of God. They don't have any motive for themselves because they've fallen in love with God. They've recognized the greatness of, his, of the beauty of who God is. As King David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To what? To behold the beauty of the Lord. And the beauty of the Lord, God, is the very source of all beauty. He's the very source of all that is good. And that is held and the holiness of his being, which is the integrity of his love that is as a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to his love. It is the defensive aspect of the holiness of God. It is a love that is so pure that it can contain wholeness because it will not tolerate corruption. Corruption, obviously, is the opposite of wholeness. It is destructive. Wholeness is the opposite of corruption. It is constructive, ever enlarging unto greater realms of fulfillment. And out of wholeness comes beauty, and out of beauty comes glory. But so many of us in the body of Christ in this day and hour have lost sight of the glory of God that is in his holiness. And we've been offended at the consequences of God's holiness and judgment. Or we've shrunk back like King David when he was afraid when God smote the priest that touched the ark. But then later on he recognized that his perception was wrong of God, that actually God was good in his judgments. And so he was repentant of offense that he took against the holiness of God. They will not tolerate what is contrary to his love and does not show the absolute utter reverence to the beauty and goodness of God that is in his holiness. 
glory of God. On Tuesday, I received Deuteronomy chapter 2. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 2 is really what I want to share on. I don't know if it's worth reading at all, but I'll certainly turn to it now. And so I'll go to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Deuteronomy chapter 2. Turning there. And uh, I'm going to begin reading it here. Then we turned and took our journey into the wilderness by way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spake unto me. That's Moses. And we compassed Mount Seir many days. And the Lord spake unto me, saying, Ye have compassed this mountain long enough. Turn you northward. And command thou the people, saying, Ye are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. Take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land. No, not so much as a footbreadth, because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. Ye shall buy meat of them for money, that ye may eat, and ye shall also buy water of them for money that ye may drink. For the Lord thy God hath blessed thee in all the works of thy hand. He knoweth thy walking through the great, this great wilderness these forty years. The Lord thy God hath been with thee. Thou hast lacked nothing. And when we pass by from our brethren, the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, through the way of the plain of Eloth, and from Ezan Geber, we turned and passed by the way of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said unto me, Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle, for I will not give thee of their land for a possession, because I have given heir unto the children of Lot for a possession. Now I'm going to skip some things. It's talking about the giants and how these people, like the children of Esau, dispossess these giants and so on. And then we go down to uh, verse 13 and, says, and it says this, Now rise up, said I, and get you over the brook Zered. And we went over the brook Zered. And the space in which we came from Kadesh Barnea until we were come over the brook Zered was thirty and eight years until all the generation of the man of war were wasted out from among the host as the Lord swear unto them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from among the host until they were consumed. So it came to pass, when all the men of war were consumed and dead from among the people, that the Lord spake unto me, saying, Thou art to pass over through air the coast of Moab this day. And it goes on. I don't need to mention anything more, but that now there's the beginning of the inheritance of the land. Before I received this chapter, on the same day, I was in prayer. And I remember as I was making up my bed for some strange reason, I decided, you know, I've had this mattress and I've been sleeping on one side of it for years. And I notice it's a bit lower. I'm going to just turn it around. So I slept on a new part of the mattress after all these years. It was a little bit higher because it's never been slept on on that side. But when I was in prayer, before I received this chapter, the Lord strongly spoke to me in prayer by the Spirit. This impression was made on me, and I uttered it to the Lord. I said, Lord, you're saying that I've compassed this mountain roundabout long enough. It is time to rise and go hence and inherit the land. And I repeated this before the Lord in prayer. And then I cast lots on the scripture, and I received this Deuteronomy chapter 2, which at the very beginning in verse 1 says, As the Lord spake unto me, it says, Then we turned and took our journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spake unto me. And we compassed Mount Seir many days. And the Lord spake unto me, saying, Ye have compassed this mountain long enough. Turn you northward. And that was what God was saying to me personally, that we are in a season now in the body of Christ where we've been used to the comfort zones of our little churches. 
Me as an individual, God's been doing a work where he's been putting me through the wilderness for years and years and years to burn out the deceptions of my own ways. My own ways, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Not necessarily that wandering can be trying to be so right before God and our own sufficiency can be a proneness to wander from God as well. But what I want to point out here is what God showed me from this passage of Scripture, since that is what he is indeed saying to me and to the body of Christ at this time. And so I wrote a summation here first. When the men of war had died out in the wilderness and Israel returned, and this time they obeyed the Lord's command, to not meddle with the children of Esau and the children of Lot, the Moabites, before they were compromised by being drawn into lust towards the beauty of the women of the Mount Seir. And of course, we know how Balaam tried to curse Israel and couldn't. Now they passed over the brook Zirid. Now that brook, that word Zirid has a significant mean, meaning in the J.B. Jackson Dictionary of Proper Names. It means the stranger subdued, the bond subdued. But as you look at the symbolic letters, that is the original Hebrew letters, which are picture symbols, it even brings out that meaning more effectually. Because the first symbol is the symbol of cutting off. It's a weapon, but also a tool used to reap the harvest. It means cut, food, eat, weapon. Cutting off. So the first one is cutting off. The next letter is rish, which is the symbol of a person's head, which means priority. What is absolutely a priority and first. And the last letter is the letter Dileb, which is the opening of a tent door. So what is this saying? It is saying, make cutting off a priority to enter. In this case, to enter the blessing of inheriting the promised land. There needs to come a point in our lives where all compromise is dealt with because we make it a priority to cut off all compromise so that we don't do no longer are making the, the deceptive errors like the children of Israel, where they allowed themselves to meddle with the children of Esau, the beautiful women, and entered in to bringing judgment upon them. And because of all of these things they did, is it any wonder that when they tried to inherit the land the first time, they were filled with unbelief and did not have that spirit that Jacob and Caleb had. Or not Jacob, Joshua and Caleb had. They were of another spirit because their spirit, their soul, was conformed to the being of God because they had dealt with compromise in their lives. They were wholehearted in their love for God. Joshua would lay on his face all night seeking God in the tabernacle. They were men of prayer. They did not allow the busyness and the concerns of the life around them to take priority, to allow them to enter into the deception of their own ways and compromise. And so they lived to inherit the promised land, but all the men of war died off because they refused to enter into a place where they made it a priority to cut off all those things that would rob them of their relationship with God. It is easy to get into a place of compromise where we can justify our own ways as righteous before God and actually believe that God is accepting us. I've even questioned, although I will never judge people because I don't know their heart, but I have heard people say, oh, I left my husband because he was so mean and he 
beat me or my wife, but in this case, I'm thinking of the husband. And there, and no doubt, there are men that are very hard-hearted and they're holding the truth and unrighteousness and their wives love God with all their heart and it's just a tremendous pain for their wives. And so what happens? Eventually, that wife hears from God, at least she's convinced herself that God told her to leave her husband and divorce him. Well, let me tell you, when Balaam went and was asked by the king to curse Israel, at first God told him not to go, but because it was in Balaam's heart to go, because there was covetousness in his heart, God commanded him to go. So it's possible for God to actually tell people to do something because he's angry with the compromise in their lives. And so he wants them to do it so they'll go into the trials and the suffering they deserve in order to have it burned out of their lives. And once it's burned out of their lives, God can probably still use them. But it's a painful process. And it is not something that is an exception to anyone that's a believer. Even Jacob, which means deceiver, became Israel. And he went through a process of trial. He was brought to a place where he was cornered. And he had to face his brother Esau, which he was not upright with in his dealings. And he said it was like he was facing God, because in the sense that God's judgment requires consequences. And so he says that when he saw the face of God, he gives the implication that it was like he saw Esau, but that, yeah, he saw the holiness of God and how much he deserved judgment because of the deception of his own ways. And here he knows he's going to face Esau, and he's thinking that Esau is going to kill him. But he's wrestling with his angel, and when he sees this angel, he's wrestling, which, which is the Lord in Theophany. It says that he saw the face. It was like he saw the face of God. And I believe he saw the holiness of God as a blazing judgment towards him that he deserved and then saw the mercy of God. And he refused to let go. He refused to give up his faith in God even though he saw his unworthiness. Many times when we see how guilty we are, we become discouraged and we give up and we lose faith in the goodness of God that is behind his holiness that points to the fact that he can show mercy to us and assure forgiveness if we repent. But Jacob did not give up. He was like the priest in Zechariah that is described, I believe it might be chapter 6 or I forgot where it might be 5, and it says he was clothed with filthy garments and Satan was standing at his right hand accusing him. And the Lord says, take those filthy garments off him and put on him beautiful garments and put a crown on him. Because this priest refused to give up being a priest even though he felt so condemned in himself and was aware of the filthiness of his life. It's like Isaiah who says when he sees the glory of God, I'm undone, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for I've seen the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of glory. But God is calling us to come to a place where we recognize those things that are robbing us, the loves of the world, the things that we meddle with, that rob us of time and prayer, the gods of amusement and pleasure, and these things that would hold back his glory and his destiny for our lives and cause us to fall short of his purpose and end up being as what Christ warned in John 15 that if a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and burn them in the fire. Christ himself said that many will come to me, many that say they believe in the Lord, many that say they've cast out devils and done many mighty works, and he will say to them, Depart from me, for I never knew you. May we be those that do not allow ourselves to be robbed of God's destiny and purpose for our lives, but become desperate and hungry for his presence so that we enter into inheriting 
the eternal purposes of God, not only individually, but corporately, coming forth to be his corporate bride under the headship and the government of God instead of the hierarchies of man that limit God with a denominational mindset. That is what God was saying to me this week. He is saying to me, it's time to deal with all compromise and to get your vision on building my house, making a highway for our God, getting the stones out of the way, raising the standard up for the glory of God. Then I received on Wednesday, Mark 16. Now, what impressed me about Mark 16, I wrote here briefly. In going forth armed spiritually to conquer and inherit the kingdom of God, let us be those that recognize the authority that Christ has given us and believe in his power to conquer death and all things. We need not be affrighted because we seek Jesus Christ in all we do. And so the verse that I have here is Mark 16, 6. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted, ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Let us not be those that become affrighted when we face the giants before entering the promised land. Let us be those that rise up, recognizing the authority of his resurrection life in us that our motive is to seek one thing, and that is the glory of God, that is Jesus Christ. And so Christ said unto them later in Mark 16, 16, and he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every preacher. Creature, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name, they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Lastly, I received yesterday on Thursday Psalm 142. And this psalm is to encourage us. And it would seem like a psalm that is somewhat discouraging, but there's such wonderful things in this psalm that are secrets to entering with authority and victory to inherit that promised land. And so I just want to take you to that psalm. It's not a long psalm. It might be worth me just reading it quickly. Meskill of David, a prayer when he was in the cave, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I walked, have they privately laid a snare for me? I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. Many times, just as we are about to inherit those things that God has in our lives, there are the greatest trials in our lives. And it is said in that proverb that it is the darkness just before twilight or just before the dawn, it is the darkest. And so many of us in our desire to serve God, it would seem like we are so barren. Don't forget, Joseph 
the ones that he loved, rejected him. They tried to kill him and they sold him as a slave. And the word of God says concerning Joseph, until his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. And when we are being tried, it is easy to give up. But this psalm shows the secret of those times of discouragement and tribulation, of being victorious in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the battle. And so I made these notes. We are with our voice to make supplication unto the Lord and to pour out our complaint and make our trouble known to him. There are people, they might think it's wrong to bring all their cares and burdens to the Lord and pour, oh Lord, this is happening in my life and this, help me. No, it's not wrong. It says, cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. It is important that we make those things out of a pure heart, not an unthankful heart, but out of a pure heart, pour out our burdens to the Lord. It is when our spirit is overwhelmed within us because of the trials that God then knows our path. That's what it says here. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path, verse 3. God then sees what's really the way we're going to take, what's really in our heart. We can see the things that are not of God that are in our heart and repent of them so that our path becomes his path. Through purification is the gold tried in the fire. The dross comes to the surface. If we will have faith in his forgiveness, he can take the filthy garments off us. He can skim off the dross so that the gold begins to reflect his image because we are being conformed to his image out of those realms of deception and compromise into the place of reflecting his glory and having his authority and power. We also need to then cry out to the Lord, showing our helplessness. This is a cry from the heart. This involves using our voice and crying from the depths of our heart. The word of God says the Lord is rich unto all those that call upon him. In the days of Enos before the flood, it says, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. A call upon the name of the Lord is a call that is from the depths of our heart and truth that rends the veil of hardness. Even in Romans 10, where it says, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God has raised us from, from the dead, it then just a few verses later says, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It involves a deep cry from the heart, like the publican that beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner as opposed to the Pharisees that were glorying in their own righteousness. Our soul may feel imprisoned because of the pressure of the trial. Remember, even Paul the Apostle, in seeking to bring forth the glory of God in his church, was pressed, it says in 2 Corinthians, beyond measure so that he despaired of life itself. What? For so that he would not trust in himself, but in God that raises the dead. The resurrection power of Christ is known when we come to that place of resting in the midst of the storm in who God is and learning to praise him in the prison experience of our soul like those in the book of Acts that praised him when they were in stocks and worshipped him and the glory of God came down and broke that prison and the chains that were on them. And in this passage, King David describes himself as experiencing his soul being in prison. He felt imprisoned in his soul because the oppression of the trial he was going through. And so we need to ask God to bring our soul out of this prison as King David did because we desire what? He says the next thing. Bring my soul out of prison that I may praise thy name. 
When we ask God to bring our soul out of the prison that we are experiencing through trials, that is oppressing us and pressuring us, we're asking him with a view to praise his name. Now, this isn't just a glib statement, praise your name. The word name basically means expression of who God is to man. If you look up the word for the word soul, which means life, it, in the, if you look this up in the vines, in the Old Testament vines, it basically means the reality of the very essence of who you are. And the word name means the expression of who you are to others. And so God is love. His love is so pure with integrity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to love. This is the very foundation for wholeness in our lives. For wholeness, which is that quality that has no corruption in it and therefore contains ultimate fulfillment and meaning that can ever enlarge forever without end. It is on the, out of the foundation of the being of God's love and holiness. And when we recognize the beauty of God's name, the beauty that comes out of that wholeness, the glory that comes out of that wholeness, the goodness that comes out of it in the fact that God would suffer more than you, a mere creature, and humble himself more than you, a mere creature, on the cross, in his full expression into time and space, Jesus Christ, his one and only full expression, the one true God. When we recognize the beauty and the glory of his name in his holiness and in his mercy, in his truth and in his grace, which is just the same parallel of what is described in the Old Testament, because the Hebrew word for mercy includes the understanding of grace, in the New Testament, there's mercy and grace that equates to the Hebrew word. When we want to, the word praise has two things. It has the shepherd's staff symbol first, la, and it has ha, which is the picture of a man with his arms raised. And it means beauty, sigh, breath, it's the awe. Praise basically has the understanding. The shepherd's staff means to pull something towards, like hooking a sheep towards. You're pointing towards. It actually means to shine praise, to shine towards. Well, you can shine towards, and that shining in me involves lifting your voice up loud so that everyone can hear the shine of your voice, shining who God is in his beauty. So bring my soul out of prison that I may shine forth the beauty of who you are. When we recognize that even in our trials we can trust God, that he has his best interest in mind and that he has a creative purpose that he's bringing out of it of tremendous resurrection like the prison doors that were broken open in the book of Acts, that it resulted in the conversion of those people. They learned the secret of how to bring their soul out of prison, not only inwardly, but outwardly. When we learn to praise God in the midst of the trials that we are facing for his name's sake, and King David was suffering these things because he was truthful and honest before God, and he refused to initiate in any way his own self in seeking to be king. He wanted God to set up who he wanted set up. And when we have that attitude of surrender, except the Lord build the house, they that labor in vain. But we are believing in this hour to do our part, to be those that can be victorious over all things. Thanks be unto God that causes us to triumph in all things in Jesus Christ. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor the, nor the grave, nor torture, or whatever it is, shall be able to separate us from this relationship of love that we have entered into with God. 
for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. Yes, we can know that, brothers and sisters. And I didn't read all the notes that I made here on Psalm 142. I suppose I could just read where I left off here. We need to cry, then cry out to the Lord, showing God our helplessness. Our soul may feel imprisoned because of these trials. So we need to ask God to bring our soul out of this prison because we desire to praise his name. We need to declare that God will deal bountifully with us and have righteous people surround our life. The key here is to be genuine in humility and honesty before God and bringing our weaknesses before God and then to choose to recognize the absolute glory, worthiness, and ultimate trustworthiness of the reality of who God is and to us in particular in the midst of our trials. This is so that our, out of a pure heart we can shine forth with voice and every part of our being from the heart, the absolute unsearchable goodness of who God is to us despite our circumstances and without shame before all. This is what God is saying to the body of Christ. He is telling us as individuals and corporately that it is time to build his church. It is time for him to restore the temple. God will have his Cyruses that will command us with the resources to do this. As we step out in faith, and I'm stepping out in faith with this outline. This outline of what God wants to have communities and cities of refuge, which are the body of Christ in every community and city on the earth, and for it to multiply around the world. This is far greater than some other revival that comes and goes. This is the end-time move of God's Spirit that brings the fullness of the government of God down onto the earth and shakes all those things that are shakeable, all those things that are leaven. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged you are called to enter the promised land. You are called to cross the brook Zered, meaning to make the cutting off a priority in order to enter destiny. That is the cutting off of all deception and compromise. God is calling his people to come out of all compromise, to wake up, and to begin to bring the greatest move, not of revival, but of far more than revival, the move of God in bringing forth his glory on the earth in his corporate bride without spot or wrinkle. Let us be those that are watchmen on the wall, that give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem as a praise in all the earth, as it says in Isaiah 62. Let us be those that make a highway for our God, that are willing to stand in the gap, to be restorers of the breach, dwellers of, uh, restorers of the breach, and of the paths to dwell in. Take out the stumbling stones and to raise this standard of holiness high. Thank you for listening to this message and may God bless you all.